Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. You're on Triple R. Welcome to Bite Into It. Tonight, we've got Mr. Dan Salmon. Good evening. Big pleasure to be here. Great to have you. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. We are looking forward to tonight discussing when and how to let go of old mobile phones in an environmentally considerate way. And you may have wondered how people experiencing homelessness are accessing news and services during this time. We'll hear from CoHealth about initiatives which are helping to bridge the information gap. So, Dan, before we get there, I thought it would be great to hear some local news. What's been going on with Services Australia? Well, Services Australia, which is, you know, the... uh arm of the federal government that deals with services that uh, we are we need at the moment and we need a lot of the time anyway but particularly at the moment um, has seen a 600% surge in the use of its uh, digital assistance so it's chatbots which are powered by Microsoft Cortana um, during the height of the first wave of, of the pandemic when you know the, the whole country was being impacted uh, a lot more than the sort of localised areas, perhaps specifically in Victoria, um, that, that are happening at the moment. So um, up, uh, they were up, where were we, 5 million inquiries for people who were using their web services. So these are services like, um, uh, you know, Centrelink and uh, Medicare, uh, any, any, anything to do with sort of the, I guess, the MyGov portal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, that, yeah, they had 5 million digital assistant inquiries for people using their services um, that needed a specific question or they had a specific question and responded through the, the bot process. And that was an increase of 600% on their, on wow. their, on their so-called standard uh, amounts. Now, um, they didn't indicate... So there are actually there are three chatbots that they use that deal with different areas. They've got, they're named Charles, Sam and Oliver. Oh, I haven't had the pleasure. No, nor have I, nor have I. Um, but um, so Charles deals with uh, questions around MyGov. Sam answers questions about the student training and family payment pages on the Services Australia website. And then um, Oliver uses is for student claims using MyGov. So um, it, it's arguable that probably Charles and Sam were the ones that people were using more than... than uh, than Oliver. Um, now, do we know much about the personalities that they may have given Charles and Sam? We don't. Um, I've, I've, if, if you are a listener and have met or interacted with Charles, Sam or Oliver, feel free to tweet us at Bite Into It because we'd be interested in finding out. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued as to whether Sam is uh, identifies as a woman or a man because Charles and Oliver, I imagine, probably are both male. Um, yeah, and it's become quite popular to have uh, non-binary or non-gender expressive kind of chatbots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you, you, is there any research into sort of how people interact with chatbots depending on what Yeah, they're... look, there's a lot of emerging research at the moment and I think the jury's still out on it, but there is um, a thread going through some of that research trying to figure out if female bots are more abused by people interacting with them mm-hmm. than male representing bots. So that would be a very interesting thing. I mean, there's definitely documented instances of the sorts of um, generic abuse that goes on of those of those services. Yeah. Um, but in a, in a completely sort of nonchalant, you know, taken for granted kind of way, oh, you know, I just get personal with my assistant and it doesn't matter and it doesn't represent anything. And, and you, can, you can buy that argument, but... 
certainly doesn't set up good behaviours. No, and, um, and I think I think that's probably indicative of, of, of a bigger problem, perhaps. Um, it's it's interesting going back to the, the stats before we get to socially, um, I suppose, yeah. commentary on, on, on something as interesting as chatbots. Um, in the first two years, Sam and Oliver answered two million questions, right. and then in a few weeks they answered 5 million questions. So that's to give you kind of any, to to give you an indication of the kind of increase in the in the rate of use. Um it's I mean it was a, obviously at the time there was a huge surge in demand for welfare services uh, through MyGov. Uh there was, you know, crashes and all this kind of stuff. Um but they've they've upgraded the portal to kind of support uh you know, up to 300,000 simultaneous u- or concurrent users. So mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, we, the government's learnt, which is good. Um, we haven't seen any any huge sort of mess-ups in terms of uh, government service provision online in recent weeks, which, you know, hopefully it continues. But we'll, we'll, I guess it's a watch-this-space kind of thing. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, across the ditch, New Zealand has introduced a charter for the responsible use of algorithms. And it's being hailed as um, something that's really a first-in-the-world type of approach. So it's called the Algorithm Charter for Orotoroa, New Zealand. And I apologise, I still haven't wrapped my tongue around the really beautiful pronunciation that my New Zealand friends managed to get with that. But according to the Minister for Statistics, um, it will improve their data transparency and accountability, especially when algorithms are being used to interpret large amounts of data. I don't even know if we have a Minister for Statistics, do we, Dan? I don't, I don't think we do, but I mean, look, New Zealand are so far ahead on everything, I'm not surprised that they do. So a, a lot of their um, their federal agencies have signed on to the charter um, and it's been ratified by them. In signing it, they've agreed to commit to a range of measures. These include explaining how decisions are informed by algorithms, uh, making sure data collected is fit for purpose um, by identifying and managing bias, which is quite an incredible ask, um, mm. ensuring that privacy, ethics and human rights are safeguarded by regularly peer-reviewing algorithms, embedding a te ao Māori perspective in the development and use of the algorithms and clearly explaining the role of humans in decisions informed by the algorithms. I mean, it is uh, a best practice approach that we're seeing from New Zealand here. Mm. It has come out of a recommendation by the government chief data steward and chief digital officer um, who in 2018 said that they required a lot more consistency across this Mm -hmm. um, for safe and effective use. So it's it's uh, a watch this space type of thing. We would hope to see people follow from New Zealand's lead in this space. Have, have there so been really other exciting. countries? Have there been other countries that have done anything like this? Is a world first, is it? This is a world first. Yeah. yeah this this level of, of commitment to, um, particularly to trying to monitor bias, to having peer review sort of things, to have privacy and ethics and human rights explicitly mm. mentioned right next to the use of data on its citizens. It's just amazing. Yeah. So, um, and, I mean, it's, it's, it's come from, I suppose, you know, read, reading the article, it's come from a place of controversy. So, you know, um, New Zealand was, there were claims that they were using citizen data collected through the country, each country's visa application process to determine people who were in breach of their visa conditions. So, and filtering people based on their age, their gender and their ethnicity. So, I, I think they've it's it, it's been a learning experience for them, but I think they've, they've come to a good place with it, and it's re- it'll be really interesting and you know hope, hopeful to see how that uh, how it plays out. Definitely. Spe- yeah. Speaking for thing of things that are I'm hopeful for is um, this guy deserves to go to prison, I guess. Um, <laughs> 
uh, I don't know. I'm a bit of a prison abolitionist, so you know, I'm not sure that anyone does. Fair but. enough. No, no, that's a, that's a perfectly reasonable stance to have. Um, uh, but the, uh, Anthony Lewandowski, who worked for uh, the part of Google that would become Waymo, which is their auto autonomous car division, um, he then founded trucking company Otto and then sold that to Uber. Um, he's been sentenced to 18 months for trade secret theft um, during his various stints in the self-driving car industry. So yeah, we just thought this is really interesting because it is such a rapidly moving space. The cars aren't that rapidly moving. Oh, uh, <laughs> sometimes they are a little bit too rapidly well, moving. Let's be but honest. But the IP, the IP definitely is absolutely. And, and look, it, it is. It's it's not just a rapidly moving. It's also a very unpredictably moving space. We don't really, you yeah. know, really know where autonomous cars. I'm trying Who's not ahead to, of whom. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there are so many puns and various double entendres here that we can like, jump in with. But it's just <laughs> like I mean, so who's overtaking who, whom in the what yeah. lane? Yeah, no, sorry. Oh, God, I miss when we could drive down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I drive to and from studio. That's all I do. Um, yeah. So, um, but yeah. So Lewandowski was initially sentenced back in March. Um, he's uh, going to be serving his sentence after the pandemic, which you know is uh, good of the justice system in the US. Um, you know, probably the only good thing in the, the justice system in the US does. Um, and he seems pretty. He seems pretty. Uh, I suppose contrite about the whole thing. You know, he's. Um, well, what's fascinating, I think, about the reporting is that because it's about trade secrets, inherently we don't get to hear what the trade secrets are. Of course. It's just this discussion that he had documents and he moved them from here to there and these people got them, but you don't get any of the, the juicy details. Which no. Is, yeah. Well, look, I mean, no, <laughs> sorry, you know, there, there are some people who would say that open source is, you know, the, the, <laughs> the way of the present and that should be the way of the future. But, yes. um, look, I mean, it's a, it sounds like a, a tech bro got his comeuppance and I'm always, I'm always in favour of that. Well, we just needed a little bit of scandal to spice up the news. It can't all be virtuous New Zealand policy. Uh, so, <laughs> Why not? So, <laughs> there's just not enough of it to no. go around, Dan. They're a small country. They can't be leading the world every day in everything. Or can they do. They? they bat above their weight. They absolutely well done do. to our neighbours. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You are listening to Bite Into It on 3RRR. My name is Dan and Vanessa is uh, with our next guest, Vin. So since 1998, Mobile Muster has collected and recycled nearly 1,500 tonnes of mobiles and accessories, including over 14 million handsets and batteries. It's an incredible effort. And Spyro Carlos, manager of Mobile Muster, is here to tell us more about their annual drive. Welcome, Spyro. Oh, sorry, Spiro, would that be? <laughs> it is right. Thank you for having me. That's okay. I get called Spiro, so I'm used to it. <laughs> ah, so, so, so Spiro, um, Mobile Mustard, in, in, in a few words, tell us, uh, tell us what you guys do. Yeah, so Mobile Mustard is, in its technical term, is the product stewardship scheme of the mobile phone industry in Australia. And it's basically the, uh, the manufacturers and the network providers, the so Telstra, Optus and Vodafone, coming together and establishing a program uh, for managing mobile phones and accessories when they reach their end of life. And we do that through recycling. Right. Okay. So you, you, you guys have been around for a while. Um, what, what, how, how did it all start? So, yes, we, we've been around for over 21 years. So back in 1998, the three major brands in the market at that time were Telstra, Nokia and Motorola and how times have actually changed. So it's those three brands that came together and had the foresight to think about, um, as people update their phones, what do they want to do with those old ones when, they can't, uh, when, when they're not able to be used again? So it was 
the establishment of that program, and certainly over the years we've grown and we take back more than just mobile phones. And you think about how the technology has changed, our scope of product has also increased over time. Right. So, so um, I suppose what what what's been the the kind of main changes you've seen? I think the uh, the biggest uh, biggest. The change in terms of devices is the technology itself. So, you know, back in the early 90s when mobile phones uh, first came about, it was about you could only really make a call or send a text message. Now we refer to them as um, smartphones, and that's because we're doing so much more on them than ever before. And even now we're seeing that technology shift through to wearables. So you've got your smartwatches, your virtual reality headsets, um, and then you know even even now when you think about the functionality of those devices, as in you know, from a health perspective, um, they're also changing rapidly. So you know there's a lot of change, and I think in the last few years we're seeing a lot more change, like the technology is rapidly changing and the functionality, um, that idea that we're actually doing you know, our banking, we use our phone as our camera, um, the idea that now you can put your driver's licence on your mobile phone, so potentially at some point you're not going to be carrying a wallet around. Absolutely, and I mean, and I mean we're, we're, see- we're seeing that right now, so obviously, you know, with things like Google Wallet and Apple Wallet, they're, they're kind of, you know, becoming so prevalent and we can't, we can't really live without them. But I've, I think we've, we've, I don't know if you've uh, noticed in your data, but it seems like, you know, uh, people aren't disposing of their phones as much as they would have in recent years when, you know, we're, you know, obviously back in the early days of the iPhone, people would be updating every time a new one came out. Uh, have, you, have you guys seen much, uh, much of a change in, uh, I suppose, the rate of which people are donating their phones to you guys? Yeah, we certainly have, Dan. I think the, the biggest challenge um, for us in Australia is um, certainly people aren't throwing these phones uh, out into the rubbish or into the general waste stream. Um, people are holding on to them. Uh, in terms of the length of time that people are holding on to them, that sort of increased from you know, 18, 24 months, which used to be the length of a contract, to closer to 36 months. And, and I guess there's a couple of reasons that's actually happening. We're putting greater value on these devices, um, so we're spending a lot more in purchasing these devices than we tend to use them uh, for an extended period of time. Um, The other thing that we're certainly finding is one of the reasons that people are sort of reluctant to let them go is data security. It's something that's becoming, um, that people are becoming more concerned with. And again, that goes back to the fact that we're doing so much more on these devices, there's so much personal data on them. Um, But from a mobile master perspective, what we're trying to do is encourage people, rather than storing them, is to think about what they're actually doing with that old technology. It's, 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 it's worthless in a sense putting it into a drawer. So the best time to look at removing the data, backing the data is, is when you actually got that new device. And it's that opportunity where you can actually sell it, pass it on and extend the life of um, that mobile phone. So it's not all about recycling. It's when it reaches its end of life, when it's old technology, it's broken, you, you know you're not going to ever use it again. It's time to actually take action and recycle it rather than storing it because the value comes in the material we can actually recover through that and put back into the supply chain and so it goes into the production of new products um, and actually lessens the need to mine for virgin material. Sure, I think um, our audience would be very on board with the environmentally friendly message that you have there. Um, are we talking about landfill issues or is it much more about the actual sort of pollution of the, of the sorts of things that go into making our mobile phones that are, you know, the bigger environmental challenge with the products? Well, the, the thing with actually throwing it into, let's say it goes into landfill, the, the biggest risk we have is, is, is what's called leaching, and that predominantly comes out of the, the batteries themselves. 
Um, and that's when batteries get punctured and stuff. It creates all sorts of problems within the environment. Uh, I think from, from our perspective in terms of recycling, um, we can recover 98% of the material in a mobile phone. And we're talking about the, the traditionally the plastics and the glass because it's highly recyclable. But there's all these metals that sit on that circuit board, silver, palladium, platinum, copper, tin. It's all recoverable. Um, and it just means you don't have to go digging up the, the planet to produce new material to go into the production of these products. It's about re reusing, reusing the material that's already there over and over again. Yeah, and lots of the lots of the metals and and uh, and heavy metals indeed that you just named are, are super uh, expensive types of materials to be working with. So it's not just I guess the environmental cost. I guess you know if we can be getting a, a second use out of those things, that's great. Um, when you look at the the breadth of things that people should be bringing in, you know, do you make any recommendations like, hey, this type of Nokia hasn't been able to be updated in a decade. We really think that this should be something you should look for. Is there a, is there a, a wish list? Look, you know, if you've got if you've got one of the original Nokia thirty three tens, it ran on two G technology. <laughs> that that network has actually been switched off, so it's never <laughs> making a comeback. Um, so it's that sort of stuff. When you think about all the cables and the charges you've accumulated over time, because uh, you know we estimate there's five million broken phones in people's doors around the country. So most of us have actually got them, but it's probably four or five times that amount of charges and accessories that we're sort of filling up our drawers with. Oh, also. that is so, so true. And, everyone. <laughs> phone. <laughs> I think about 10% of that 5 million is probably in my house that I've accumulated <laughs> over the last 10 years and I'm just looking forward to giving them to you guys in, in the next few weeks. Um, Spiro, you guys have a bit, a bit, a bit of a, 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 I suppose, a, a drive happening at the moment. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, we have. We've, we've sort of partnered with uh, Landcare Australia, or we have partnered with Landcare Australia, and it's to, to double the impact of uh, recycling. So not only will you be doing good by being able to recover the materials in that and that mobile phone, so reducing your carbon footprint, I guess, and saving energy. But we're also uh, asking people to recycle this month, and the more mobile phones we collect for the recycling, we'll actually provide funds to Landcare Australia to continue the great work that they're doing in our local community. And, and I guess it can be said the, the environment this year has copped a bit of a hiding when you think about fires, floods, droughts. So, you know, Landcare does some amazing work uh, especially at a grassroots level in uh, regenerating our natural environment with, you know, native trees and shrubs. And, and that's what the funding will go towards. So we're asking people to find those phones that they've, they've got at stored at, at home uh, and recycle them. And then we'll do the, the heavy lifting with Landcare Australia. Spiro, in some ways, I think your campaign could not be better timed this year because people are home. They are hopefully having a little bit of extra time to clean up their junk and maybe creating a bit of a more serene environment around them is something on people's uh, to-do list at the moment. However, it does pose extra challenges for how people get um, things to your organisation. So what are your recommendations for how to get uh, a, an old mobile phone or, or piece of um, related equipment to your mobile muster drive? Yeah, so Vanessa, traditionally we we ask people to drop them off. We have 3,500 public drop-off points around the country, you know, in all of the major retailers, uh, including, you know, Telstrops and Vodafone and Officeworks. But uh, like you said, we're spending a lot more time at home, especially uh, what we're seeing coming out of Victoria. But we've created a reply paid label. So uh, or you just need to go to our website, 
so melbourremustard.com.au, and you can order one of those labels. We'll post it out to you. You just package everything up, and then you drop it into a red uh, Auspost red box when you can. So we've tried to make it as really as easy as possible, uh, obviously, to motivate people to um, to find those devices and recycling them. And the reply paid label um, is that mechanism that's sort of adapted to the current environment, I guess. And uh, I think if people feel like, you know, they're not going to be running around getting things in the post right now, maybe you can just put a little thing in the diary for when we're set to come out of this lockdown in Victoria and uh, maybe do a run around with a few friends and get a bunch of old mobile phones together and put them all in at once, like make it a bit of a community effort. That might be a, a good approach. It is a great approach, and even in like, in, especially in schools and so forth, I think it's a great way to get kids engaged and learning about uh, recycling. But not just recycling, but you know, learning about what goes into a mobile phone, the the role it actually plays. Um, so it's about encouraging each other to do the right thing when it comes to obviously mobile phone recycling from our perspective. Yep, absolutely. Um, I think it's it's a great story and uh, the fact that you've had so much success is really good, but I know I still have some handsets that I should probably be handing over. Dan's already confessed to some, so obviously uh, there's plenty of potential out there. So Spiro, thanks so much for telling us about Mobile Musters campaign this year. Pleasure. Thank you for the support and I look forward to getting your phone All right, mail. listeners can check out <laughs> mobilemuster.com.au. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. My name is Dan and your name is Vanessa. And who are we speaking to next? Speaking to Chris Turner. He is Executive Lead Capability for CoHealth, which is a not-for-profit community health organisation that strives to improve health and wellbeing for all and lead the way in reducing health inequity in partnership with people and the communities in which they live. It's a lofty ambition, but Chris, we feel you're up for it. Thanks for joining us tonight. No worries. I was just saying I was listening to your previous um, host uh, your previous session with Spyro, who mentioned the 3310, and I fondly remember my first phone, which was the Nokia 5110. So, <laughs> taking me back quite a little while there. It's a classic. It is a classic. They were just indestructible. All right, look, um, it is so good to have you with us tonight because you have been working on a great program. One thing you've been doing to help bridge the digital divide for um, for your constituents is distributing nearly 100 old Nokia phones um, because they absolutely are such legends and they've got really long battery life. And you've also been doling out smart tablets to clients in the hope that you'll connect them with some of the, the vital information and services that, uh, as we know, it's so hard to get if you're not online these days. Chris, how did this project evolve? Yeah, it's um, it's been a great project. So as you mentioned before, we provide a combination of of health promotion, community development, and also general medical nursing, mental health, and physical health services across Melbourne's northwest. And specifically at our central city location, we have a homeless support program, which focuses on addressing not just the health needs of people experiencing homelessness, but also helping them understand what other supports are out there and available to them. And as we've all experienced in the last eight months with COVID, lots of the issues experienced by our homeless population and also the challenges for us service providers remaining connected to the community, we mm. looked at a program where we could connect people through technology. So really using technology to enable the strengths of both our staff, but also the strengths of the, the community that we were serving. 
So the way that we did that is we purchased 100 phones, provided those Nokias, as you said, those indestructible battery um, forever Nokias, to community and used it as a way to allow them to touch in with health messaging, but also as a way for our providers to remain in touch with the community as well. So whilst we're still continuing to provide support in our drop-in centres, we've done an enormous amount of work of trying to move as much of our support as we can online to really help the community that we serve to maintain good social distancing, but also maintain good connection as well. Yeah. Chris, um, you specifically call out the, the long battery life of the Nokias that you chose. Um, and I, I'd say battery life is still a day-to-day -day issue for those of us who are in um, continuous housing and, you know, have stable environments to be in. Uh, what sorts of challenges are your clients looking at? It's true. So I think that, I mean, speaking specifically to battery, and it's actually homeless week this week with this year's theme being everybody needs a home, and I just wanted to highlight there that every night there are 24,000 Victorians who are considered homeless. Now, that is a continuum. Most of us would um, identify with seeing people sleeping rough, maybe being in the city and identifying with someone as they see sleeping on a park bench or sleeping in a park. But not every person who's considered homeless is um, sleeping rough. We do have some people sleeping in cars, sleeping on couches, or living in insecure accommodation for... So for some of those folks, keeping a, a phone charged is not um, as hard as what you might consider, whereas there are other drop-in services that people can go to day in, day out to keep those phones charged. And by doing so, we found that they've been able to navigate the system much more successfully. And also for our uh, community as well, we've been able to provide a range of support programs. One of the things that we just did recently is normally we would offer a, an afternoon activity where we would allow people to come and gather and they would um, go on a, a social outing together. We've obviously the social distancing practices that we have in place at the moment, that's not possible. So we went on a virtual tour of the zoo with our community. So people still got together, used the devices to connect in, and we're still able to have a, a, a wonderful time fostering and forming connections, sharing stories, and also helping each other as a community understand um, ways in which they can support one another and tips and tricks on how to best support one another with their experience of homelessness at the moment. That sounds delightful for anyone um, uh, at the best of times. So I'm really happy that some people are getting to experience that in the worst of times, uh, you know, arguably. Um, so what other sorts of services are people finding it, it's uh, more difficult to access now and that these, these sort of phones and tablets are, are giving a bit of a lifeline to? Yeah, as you can appreciate, if you're experiencing homelessness, the bureaucracy of the, the systems that are available to us are so challenging at the best of times. If you don't have a fixed address, you don't have a licence, you don't have forms of identification, it can be really hard for you to access services. So by bringing um, devices to people, it allows them to really tap into the abundance of information that is generally available on the internet, but also allows for them to connect in with our support into things such as Centrelink, um, into homelessness services. And I think it's important, and what we strive to do in our program is recognising that uh, housing is the first thing that someone who is uh, experiencing homelessness needs, but also there's wraparound supports such as health supports, mental health supports, drug and alcohol counselling. Being able to get into and access those programs goes a long way to supporting people to then be able to um, get into more secure accommodation and hopefully 
the able to end homelessness. Yeah. Chris, that's a, a very laudable aim. Um, a few years back, we interviewed uh, some people about this amazing app called um, Ask Izzy that was also designed for people yeah. experiencing homelessness to link them with a whole lot of services. Um, I wonder, you know, did you uh, learn from any other services that had been around or did you try and uh, tap into research about, um, you know, people's access to these sort of devices and, and the gap before, before venturing into this space? Yeah, so I mean, Ask Easy is a fantastic platform um, developed by Info Exchange, and it's certainly one that we use and encourage uh, the communities that we work with to use as well. And absolutely, all of the things you see on the Ask Easy platform, which is you know connecting people in with social support, Centrelink, drug and alcohol counselling, you know, even understanding things like where facilities are, like space, toilet spaces and stuff. Um, we know that that is there, but what we did is we actually interviewed um, about 100 of our clients and just asked them what one of the biggest challenges to accessing existing supports was, and for a lot of them it was actually having a device. So we really went to it and said, well, it's not necessarily the services out there, it's not necessarily the applications that are aggregating a lot of that information. For them, it was actually just the device and access to the device themselves, and that's where the idea came from. It came from our consumers, it came from the community, and so we then just said, well, the easiest thing for us to do is go and purchase some devices, purchase some data plans, put them in the hands of our community, and then see whether that uh, results in better outcomes. And if I can just share one quick story. Um, yeah. There's a young woman who was engaged with our service and she'd been accessing a range of health, wellbeing and housing supports for quite a while. She currently lives in a rooming home and she didn't have access to a device. So through this program, she was able to access a device and with our workers, she set a goal for herself around education. She's now started using the device with her worker to do some practice and test exams. And I just found out recently that in the last few weeks she's been sitting entrance exams at the moment for a diploma in nursing. And none oh, of that, that would have been possible without the, the device being provided to her. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, I guess it shows the power of a really user-centric approach to trying to, um, to problem-solve. That's brilliant. Mm. So, Chris, there's one other aspect to what you've been working on at the moment that we wanted to touch on. Um, yeah. You've been putting together a zine produced by people who are experiencing homelessness. We have, yeah. So another one of our um, clients who we provided a device to, who I think if you saw the article in The Age, you will have seen a photo of, of our, our client there. He um, and a range of eight, eight other clients have been the editorial committee for that zine. So acknowledging that digital ways of communication are really, uh, really great, really wonderful, but they do rely upon on people having devices. We also sought to create, uh, you know, a, a more analog or paper-based way of distributing the same level of information. So that editorial committee get together, they share stories, they share um, information, they share ideas, tricks, tips for people who are experiencing homelessness, and we distribute that line. Um, through drop-in centres, places that are frequented by people experiencing homelessness. And it's just another way to make sure that information is out there. But again, as you said, it's user-centric, it's reader-centric, it's designed and, um, and edited by individuals experiencing homelessness or have had an experience of homelessness, AOD, or, or even um, justice experience as well. So yeah. that's something that we... Our staff support in terms of um, editing up, putting... 
through the print press and, and getting out into those locations. But again, it's uh, content that we can share both digitally and through the paper. Yep. Well, I, I just highly recommend it. It's well worth a read um, to get some different perspectives on, on what um, our communities are going through at the moment. And it's also uh, a great resource. Um, it's available at www.needtoknowhomeless.org.au. And uh, Chris, thanks so much for the, the work that you're doing in our community at the moment. Thanks for having me tonight. It's a pleasure. We've been speaking with Chris Turner from CoHealth. Do check out needtoknowhomeless.org.au. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. You are listening to 3 Triple R. We are bite into it. Vanessa, what have we got? Weird news of the week. It's a segment we love. We don't always find the right candidates, but this week um, we're pretty happy to report that face masks are breaking facial recognition algorithms. It says a new government study. I love the fact that there's a government study studying this already. <laughs> it's like those museums that are collecting artefacts of COVID as it's happening. It's like it's, it's, we're yeah. living in history. It's actually kind of cool to think of it that way. Well, it does, it does help put things in perspective, doesn't it? But the US National Institute of Standards and Technology, who do produce a whole lot of interesting research, have uh, already started to release information that wearing face masks that adequately cover the mouth and nose causes the error rate of some of the most widely used facial recognition algorithms to spike between 5% and 50%, mm-hmm. which is nothing new for people of colour, but something very new for everybody else. Yeah. Um, so. What is useful to know for the average mask wearer is that black masks are more likely to cause errors than blue masks. So I don't know if you've seen Daniel Andrews and his very, you know, I'm radiating trust in my navy blue mask, which I'm sure has been workshopped sort of thing. (laughs) That is not likely to cause as many errors as your, you know, Stalin black mask, your Melbourne black. It's interesting because I've, I mean, obviously, you know, when you're obeying the rules and wearing a mask when you're outside, um, I've become very used to paying with the facial recognition on my phone for things. Um, so as a result, because of wearing the mask, I now have to revert back to, because my, fo- my facial recognition isn't recognising me, I have to revert back to typing in my code in order to pay for things using Apple Pay, which I never I think... thought I would have to complain about. But it is, something, <laughs> it is something that I've noticed. Well, I'd like to say to those people who aren't wearing their mask correctly, perhaps, and having it down below the nose, not doing any good for their facial recognition. Uh, so if you want to protect against that, you want to up above the nose. Ah, you know, we, have, we are four masks. This is here. good to know. This is very good to know. Cover your mask and keep the facial recognition working. But what's interesting is some of the technical reasons why masks would call these things to fail. Some of them are to do with the fact that uh, some of these algorithms use depth sensors for extra security to try and make sure that their algorithms can't be fooled by showing cameras pictures of people, mm. which is an obvious vulnerability. So that's that's kind of interesting, that flattening effect. Um, is, yeah, kind of cool. So their report only tested one type of facial recognition, which is known as one-to-one matching. So it's the sort of thing that we get subject to in border crossings and passport control scenarios. So the algorithm checks to see if the target face matches an ID. So it's a very specific type of recognition. So it's different to the sort that we're starting to see a lot more of, which is the sort used for mass surveillance in a crowd where things are scanned using multiple camera angles. Um, a, a, a bit more news. This this is not so much 
weird, it's a little bit sad. Um, Bill English, who was uh, an American, I suppose, uh, pioneer in the world of... of uh, he was, of, I suppose, an American. He was a, <laughs> yes, I suppose he was American. Um, no, so he was he was one of the men um, responsible for the invention of the computer mouse, which I'm, I'm holding one right now. Um, some of you might be holding so one. So am I. Yes. Um, he, he, he has sadly passed away at the age of 91. So uh, he worked with um, Douglas Engelbart, who was a collaborator in, in the very early days of computing, in uh, sort of the early 1960s. Uh, well, I suppose, you know, the relatively early days of computing. Um, he, uh, I suppose, built the the wooden box with a single button and two wheels underneath, which was kind of the, the I suppose, the physical embodiment of what Engelbart's idea for creating a device that could be used to easily select words and characters on a screen. Now, it's fantastic how huge it is. It's worth looking up um, pictures of the first mouse because it's a little bit like looking at pictures of the first mobile phone. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's interesting kind of when you delve down into this stuff. That I'd never heard of this mother of all demos, which was in 1968. There was a presentation at the Stanford Research Institute where the mouse was debuted but also hyperlinks, real-time editing, Windows and computer teleconferencing. So there was this this one moment in 1968 which basically foreshadowed the way that we interact with computers and largely with each other at the moment with computer teleconferencing. Little did Bill and Doug know that years later, poor um, tech help desk people would be sharing the stories of trying to help people using their mouse and uh, <laughs> finding out that they'd set it up like a foot pedal underneath their desks. <laughs> that, have you got a story to tell there, Vanessa? Is that, no, is no. It? It's, just a, it's just a very famous help desk story where someone's trying to help someone and, you know, they're more familiar with sewing machines than they are with the new <laughs> mouse technology. And they're just like, well, I've set it up. I think everything's in a logical place. You know, it's like how people used to think that the uh, – uh, the disk drive was a coffee cup holder. Of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. it's, it's a little apocryphal, but, you know, we want to go with it. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, so uh, uh, Bill English, uh, sadly, has passed away at the age of 91. So um, well, you know, thank, great you, work, thank Bill. you for his contribution to how we live our lives. Yes, you will not be forgotten soon. Um, so a little bit of news on the TikTok front. There's there's tons of it every day now. You, you can't um, open the text section without there being something about TikTok. But Scott Morrison has ruled out a TikTok ban for Australia after the China data theft allegations. Interesting. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I just had advertising pop up on the on the page that I was trying to tell that story from, so I've had to shut it frantically. Was it an ad for TikTok? <laughs> no. <laughs> That, that would have been coming awesome. through? No, it didn't come through at all. Oh, that's so frustrating. Oh, man. But, yeah, so um, it's it's obviously, you know, Australia's, well, I suppose, you know, the the Western, in inverted commas, world's inter, uh, relationship with uh, the People's Republic of China, I should say the, the Chinese country rather than Chinese people, um, is, is fraught at the moment. Um, well, I'm I'm going to an ABC source because they will not force audio on me when I go to their website. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but pretty much they've said they're looking very closely at the Chinese-owned app and multiple agencies have investigated whether it posed a security threat. However, he seemed to rule out a ban when he was speaking to the Aspen Security Forum. Interesting. Aspen, huh? Aspen. Mm. Oh, I don't know about that. Who's been heading to Aspen lately well, from yeah, Australia? Well, people who shouldn't be. But um, it's 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 interesting that um, TikTok. The so the so the the parent company of TikTok, which is ByteDance in China, um, is very very cognizant of the fact that TikTok is a massive cat 
cash cow for them. And if TikTok does get banned in numerous countries uh, because perceived, I suppose, closeness to the authoritarian state in which ByteDance exists, um, they're you know they're going to lose money. And so we've and we've seen uh, India has banned TikTok, and that's you know close to a billion users of the of the platform who aren't using it anymore. Um, the the president, and I again use that word in inverted commas, of the United States, uh, Donald Trump, has said that he is, you know, uh, considering doing something similar. So, but well, he wanted to cut. He started talking about what sounded suspiciously like extortion. And he's just like, oh, we're such a big audience for them. And, you mm. know, if we're, if we're really going to let them in our market, we should be getting a cut of the profits. Yeah. And it was scandalous. Absolutely. But but in, in response to all of these concerns, uh, ByteDance have actually started looking into... Um, Splitting their company essentially, so that the, the the bit that owns TikTok actually will be based in the US and will be a US domiciled company, um, whereas the uh, the I think the Chinese sort of equivalent of TikTok is called Douyin, and ByteDance mm. will remain a Chinese owned company, and Douyin will just continue as it is in China. So yeah, it's uh, a very interesting approach to that that problem, isn't it? Very, very. I'll be interested to see how that turns out. Yeah. Hey, there's some fabulous events on on the uh, the radar. Um, the one I'm most excited about, I've got to say, is the Games Talk 2020 series by RMIT and co-hosted with Acme. Now, we haven't had Acme events for a while because obviously they're going through massive renovations at the moment, but this is right up their alley. They are aiming to bring some of Australia's best and brightest coders, leaders, developers, artists and animators to take us behind the scenes of their games and careers to answer our questions. So in terms of it being a series, it's running each Monday from the 10th of August at 6pm. It is free and it's online at the Acme YouTube channel. It's kicking off with the creators of Runaway Success Story Untitled Goose Game. Oh. So... I know, incredible, right? So if you want to find out more about that, look up the Games Talk 2020 series. It's at acme.net.au. It's in their events. You can't miss it. And um, that sounds like a great thing to do with your Monday nights. Absolutely. Another great thing to do would be to go, head along virtually, of course, to uh, Monash University's Changemakers series. The next talk that they're doing on the 12th of August, which if my calculations are correct, is next Wednesday, uh, just before us. So That you, competition. No, no, no. A lead-in. A lead-in. It's running from 5, 5 o'clock to 6.30 so you will be able to go and check out the Changemakers event on ethics in artificial intelligence. So they are, they have pulled together an interdisciplinary panel. I can never pronounce that word. Um, <laughs> I struggle with statistics, Dan, statistics. So, you know, oh, well, you're doing fine. I, I struggle with statistics too but in a different <laughs> way. Um, they discuss various aspects of AI ethics while looking closely at Australia's AI ethics framework such as it is released in 2019 by Data61 and underpinned by eight ethical principles for AI. Um, talks uh, speakers will include uh, Dr. Stefan Heikovic. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. I probably haven't. Who is the lead author of Australia's AI ethics framework and the head of the strategic force for Data 61. Uh, Professor Liz, Liz Campbell from the Monash Law School. Uh, who has undertaken research in AI ethics and facial recognition technology. Um, uh, Dr. Campbell Wilson, who is the Associate Dean of International at Monash IT, who will uh, draw on his experience from the AI uh, for law enforcement and community safety lab for, in partnership with the Australian Federal Police Force. Um, and that then would be, be interesting. It looks really interesting. And there is a human rights perspective from um, the, it will be moderated by uh, the Honourable Kevin Bell, AMQC. So, um, yeah, log in. We'll log just get in. a silk to moderate our, our little chat here, shall we? Well, yeah. yeah, we'll just get a silk involved, but as, as, as one does. Uh, look, that'll be a fantastic talk and um, a, a, I think a robust discussion and you'll be able to do it just before you tune in to Byte. Beautiful. 
Um, one more event. Let's talk STEM. Shining the spotlight on the future of STEM is happening 19th of August as part of National Science Week. Check it out on the Monash website. They've got an event section. Um, it's going to be really interesting because they'll be looking at Professor Deborah Corrigan's new report on um, the future of education in STEM. Hey, thanks to our guests this evening, Mobile Musters Spiro Carlos and Co-Health's Chris Turner. They're both doing amazing work for our communities, for our environment. Um, it's very heartwarming. Thanks to you, Dan, for being my co-host. And thank, thank you, you, Vanessa. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Talks producer Elizabeth McCarthy. We've been bite into it and we'll be back next Wednesday evening. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.